Growing up, I was very aware of my sin. S plural, sins. I was very aware of other people's sins, much more plural. <laughs> like I was, uh, uh, but it wasn't always that way. Uh, at a young age, I really gravitated towards Christ. I mean, I can remember being at age five or six, hearing the stories of Jesus and being moved. And um, grew up in a, in a church that really celebrated and supported um, kids coming to know Christ at a young age. There, there wasn't like a confirmation stage you would go through. There wasn't like doctrines or checkpoints along the way. It was more like, oh, you, you want to be baptized at five? Sure, let's get baptized at five. And, and, uh, and so early on, I just, I don't know, something in me was really pulled towards Christ, pulled towards the church. But then as I got older, especially going into adolescence and my teens, I had much less uh, fervor for Christ in that I just loved Jesus and he was so great. Now it was, I'm a horrible, pathetic little person and I need to like repent and get my stuff straight. And that plagued me for years. Now you have to remember I started preaching in my church when I was 14, not because I was good, but because we were out in the country, right? And just things happen in the country. We all know this, right? Especially in Mississippi, things happen sometimes. And so they're like, well, you're a warm body. You, you step into this and, and do this now. And so that's what I did. I, I stepped into that role and started preaching at a young age. And I also, on a regular basis, would start going down to the altar. Anybody grew up with altar calls? right? Anybody? Okay, a few of us here. So altar calls are a thing. It's like a shaming call, but also it's a salvation call. I mean, it could be both, right? But kind of both happen. Because, you know, John's not walking down, but Sam is. We're like, what did Sam do this week? You know, like, man, Sam's down there repenting again. I knew Sam was that kind of person. Like, it was that kind of thing. Like, and why is it David never goes down? Man, David's such a jerk. You know, like, it was, it, don't, I'm not alone on this, okay? If you grew up in churches like that, you did that too. Thank you very much, all right? So I, I grew up, and I would go down at like 14, 15, 16, and I'm beating the altar every week, like crying out, like, God, please forgive me. And you got to wonder what people were wondering about me. They're like, what did this kid do? And he just preached last week. What is going on here? And so, but this was my regular rhythm. I was so torn and beat down with my sinfulness. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I just felt I had to give more and more penance and more and more beating and flailing of myself and saying, God, please, just one more time. Like, one more time, God. I was like a Justin Bieber song. Like, one more time, God. Just please don't leave me now, girl. You know, I'll be here. Like, that kind of thing. And so I just always felt like that something was often wrong with me. And in turn, what I found I started creating in me, because I was like, this is getting ridiculous, but I can't stop feeling so bad. So I found that I created almost this 1 p.m. and 1 a.m. me. It's almost like split, like a bifurcation inside of me. And I had this 1 p.m. me that had it all together, you know, was a good guy and played sports and went to church and all those things. And then I had this 1 a.m. side of me that didn't know what to do with all these lusts and cravings and I didn't know what to do with all my loneliness. I didn't know what to do with all these pains I had. So eventually I just got to where I just tried to hide out. I was like, I got to quit beating the altar every time. I just got to kind of show up and show out a little bit more. 
And I found that I had these two sides of me developing. This side that was very open and, oh, there's Robin and this other side that nobody ever got to see. And it was tearing me apart. Now, without a show of hands, can you relate to that? Can you relate to feeling like that you have these two sides almost? This side of you that is kind of, you try to keep it as squeaky clean as possible and play by the rules and get it all right and be judged accordingly. And this other side of you that you don't really want to be known. And if so, then Lent is for you. I mean, we're in the season of Lent right now. And we're about to get really sad for a long time, right? Like, if you like happiness, just we'll see you at Easter, right? Because Lent is about letting yourself finally have the space for sadness. Letting yourself have the space for grief. You know, we don't, we don't do grief and sadness and pain very well. Uh, we, all of us, I mean, this is why our social, anybody ever get the reports on your phone of how many minutes or hours you spend on your phone a day? Like, how depressing is that, right? Unless you're completely checked out or a Zoomer. Like, how depressing is that? Like, oh my God, look at all the time I spend here checking out. Because um, I don't want to feel things. I don't want to face things. And so, I can relate to that. I can relate to how often I don't want to face the pain, but Lent is a set-aside time to go, no, like pain matters. Your sadness matters. The grief in your life matters. And what we believe through Lent is that until you start giving space for that, you'll never be able to accept what is, but always keep running from it. And therefore, you'll keep recreating the same pains in your life because you don't want to face them. I mean, that's, there's your first therapy session when you go next week, all right? Like, until you face it, you're going to keep recreating it. And so we believe that as Christians as a whole, facing this pain is important. And so today we have, through, through our liturgy, through the lectionary, our first reading for this season. And it's here in a very common story in Genesis 2 and 3. One that a lot of us probably are very, very familiar with. Um, and so sometimes it can kind of go in one ear and out the other. But what this passage, I think, could really tell us if we want to listen is, there are limitations to our humanity, and there are ways that we mess it up along the way. But until we learn to talk about those ways we keep messing it up in a good and healthy way, our only solution will be to beat ourselves down and try to hide out. And this passage is trying to give us a warning to not live in those ways of beating ourselves down and in turn hiding out. Now, first a disclaimer, though, when I talk about this passage. Listen, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 has sparked all kind of debate for years and years. Most scholars would agree that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are something called primeval history. And that's just a fancy way of saying uh, stories. Uh, stories that sometimes can become mythological, but not necessarily that they aren't unreal. It's like the idea if you've ever been fishing and the fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You probably still caught the fish, but let's be honest, you didn't do that. Some people approach Genesis in those ways. A lot of people within the scholar world do. There are those that also approach Genesis as a historical document and that these things actually happened. And I want you to know whether, whichever side you land on, both are okay. You can, you can get what I'm saying this morning, you can get something out of it. Uh, at Christ City, we try to hold those kind of things open-handed. We're not going to tell you how you're supposed to read Genesis 1 through 11 exactly. You might hear different pastors preach it with different leanings, but that doesn't mean that you have to see it the exact same way. 
So how I'm approaching, though, Genesis chapters 2 and 3 is more of the lessons to learn, though, regardless if the story's happened or not, that there are lessons for us to learn in this. So just want to kind of put you at ease. This isn't going to be some kind of like, let me apologetically convince you one way or another of how to handle Genesis 1 through 11, all right? I'll let, I'll let Jamin do that. Go get coffee with him. So first, let's just start reading here, though, in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It'll be on the screen. Because what we find is that this story starts off God with man and then man with creation. God with man, man with creation. That God tended to man and man tended to the world around him. And that was the deal. And we read here, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, much like the slogan for a police force to serve and protect, that is what to tend and to keep means here in the Hebrew. That Adam and Eve, which we'll see, are to serve and protect the garden. This is their world. This is what they're supposed to cultivate and tend to and give attention to on a regular basis. And we find, though, at the middle of the garden, there's this tree that God puts, this tree of good and evil. And, um, and God says, don't eat of it. Like, don't take fruit and eat of it. Now, listen, if you're reading this as a little child, which is really important, like children always get the best explanations of passages like this, and they read it, and you go, well, then why'd you put it there if you can't eat it? Like, who puts a big chocolate bar in front of their five-year-old in the middle of the living room and says, I just want you to avoid this for the next five days? Don't touch it. Don't get near it. Like, don't do it, right? Like, of course, that's horrible parenting, we would all say. That or you just really, like, have a sadistic way of parenting, either way. Um, and so we approach it that way, but there's also another way to talk about it, and that is... Perhaps God has this tree there, not to mess with Adam and Eve, but to remind Adam and Eve, to remind them of their creation status, that they're not God, but they're like God. Um, and although they're like God, they don't have the decision-making of God. By having that tree there, it actually allows them to be reminded of their humanity, that they don't need to live above their humanity or below their humanity, which, quick note, these kind of things are really good in life. One of them is called marriage, right? Like if you get married to another person who has their own agency, they remind you regularly that you are not their God, right? And we're not always playing by your rules. Uh, kids are a good way of doing this, that they remind you of your limitations of what you can and can't pull off. Jobs and having bosses are these kinds of things as well. The little liturgies put into our lives to remind us of our limitations. The saddest people are those who have enough money and power to do whatever they want, and always find themselves isolated, living above and below their humanity. So in many ways, this is kind of a gracious thing that God gives them. To say, hey, I want you to be reminded of who you are and who I am to you. Now, here's what happened next. Look at verses. I'm going to read a little bit outside of the bounds of what we've been given. So if you'll look at chapter 2, verse 25, going into chapter 3. And it says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Really important. And then it says in chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Um, 
you really can't catch this. Again, you know, when, when the original writers are writing the scriptures, they're not putting chapter and verse. That's something that was done hundreds of years later. So all of this just read like a story. Um, and it's purposeful because if you, if you were to see it in the Hebrew, these, these two sentences play off each other because they have similar sentence structure, syntax, and a specific word to play off one another. And I'll put it up here for you. The word is both aram and arum. Aram and arum. It's the same word, but just in t- the tenses of it are different. What's interesting is he says, the writer's saying they were both naked. They were both aram. And this word naked, it, it means to be bare and vulnerable. Like bare and vulnerable. How bare and vulnerable do you feel when you're naked? Like you get out of the shower or whatever you, if you walk around the house, whatever you decide to do in your own privacy of your own home. Like <laughs> how, how vulnerable like, nobody takes a bath or a shower with their clothes on, I don't think. You know, like, you're, you're like, oh, man, this is a really bare and vulnerable moment. Uh, a lot of things could come at me and hurt me, maybe, when I'm this vulnerable and this bare. But notice something. In their aram, in their, in their vulnerability they had, they also had no shame. Like, although they were vulnerable, there was nothing to hide, which is really interesting that we always feel like there's something to hide, even in our nakedness now. The, the next sentence gives us, that this, this, this serpent was crafty, and it takes the word aram and then turns it into a room, and this means to be subtle and deceitful. Interesting, those play of words there, aram and a room. One is to be vulnerable. One is how it, your vulnerability could turn to deceit. I want you to hear that. Like, our vulnerability that we have and our bareness actually has potential to always become the flip side, to not be vulnerable to not be bare, and in turn become deceitful. It's an interesting way that humans, we can become, because what happens is the rest of the story, Adam and Eve become more like the serpent than they do like their creator. And in that, they start taking on the traits of the serpent more than their creator. You know, those next few verses are going to be a discourse of the enemy trying to take away their ultimate freedom. And it's, it's things like, did God really say, first off, putting the question there, um, that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And we all know the answer to that. The answer is no. He didn't say that you can eat from any tree in the garden. And then what Eve does next is interesting because Eve then says, he said we can eat of any tree in the garden except we can't eat nor touch the tree in the middle. Did you catch that? Like she's adding a little extra spin to it. We don't see that there. Maybe God said that away from what the writer's saying here. But if this is trying to be a story to tell us something, God didn't say, don't touch it. God just said, don't eat of it. Like, if you want to put yourself in that bad situation to touch it but not eat it, that's up to you. So she even takes it a little bit further. And then we find the enemy goes on and keeps spinning to her, like, listen, God is afraid that you'll be like him. But that's a lie as well, isn't it? Because they're already like God. They're made in the image of God. So there's just a lot of mind games happening in these short few verses of verses one through five there. And eventually, Eve and Adam get so spun up, they don't know what to do, except, you know what, maybe he's right, maybe we need to do this. Now, here's what the enemy's doing. In their vulnerability, in their aram, he is bringing a craftiness, a room, and teaching them something, and that is, like, God's holding out, you deserve more. And I'm going to show you a way to hide out in plain sight. They, they go ahead and they eat of the fruit. 
And then it says in verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. By Adam and Eve crossing the boundaries of eating of the tree, they now were stepping outside of their humanity into either above trying to be like God, their humanity, but now living below their humanity, living in the shame. Do you see that? Like their attempt to be more than themselves, all of a sudden their eyes are open and they feel less than themselves. And this is how it always works with sin, with interacting with any kind of, of uh, decisions that would be counter what God wants. The laws in Scripture are simply meant to help us live more in the lane of our humanity. But whenever we start saying we want to like not abide by those things, we're either stepping outside and trying to be God, or we'll always find ourselves living as less than human. This is the allure of, take for example, something simple in an epidemic today of, of something like pornography. Uh, with pornography, what it promises is power and acceptance and love no matter what. What it leaves you with is feeling like a shell of a person. But you can also take this to work. Some of us are convinced that if I work long enough hours, I'll get enough power and enough money to have enough say-so in my life. And then you find yourself beat up, broken, maybe even lost your marriage, um, or maybe even worse, finding yourself in your 50s, 60s, 70s trying to date women who are in their 20s. Like, I don't know. There's all kinds of ways that can work out for you that you start going like, man, something's really off here. I'm, I'm either trying to live above my humanity, but I always find myself living below my humanity. And that's what the enemy had talked them into. And what they found themselves now was a situation where they're like, wait a second, I'm naked. I'm not good with me, and I need to hide. And the thing they had, and that is no shame, now they have an abundance. Like, nobody looks in the mirror today naked out of the shower and goes, man, this is great. Like 1% of you do, and even then, and they're not here, and even then, those one percenters, I see you, those one percenters, those one percenters, they had to post themselves up on, on Instagram and get enough comments that day to feel better about it. So then how insecure is that? Like nobody walks around and goes, this is all exactly how it was meant to be. No. Like we look at ourselves and go, man, what's going on here? You know, like this, this, this is not the way it's supposed to be. But if I'm honest, it's never been that way except for maybe 1% of my life. Like there's this installed part to our humanity now. We're no longer good. Who knows what Adam and Eve looked like? Like there's, I'm, does it say anything about a six pack? You know, does it say anything about like curves, whatever else? This says they're both naked. Like, who knows? But regardless, think about this. Think of, think of the freedom you have if you got to walk in front of the mirror out of the shower. I'm talking about nakedness too much, but bear with me, okay? The passage gives it, I promise. All right? How, how freeing would it be that you get to walk in front of the mirror and go, I'm good? And then you got, go get dressed, please, and move on with your day. Like, how powerful is that? Like just for a second, try to imagine the freedom you would have. That if you just got to like look at yourself, clothes on, clothes off, this job, that job, whatever it may be, and go, I'm good with this. That's real freedom. The kind of freedom that Jesus comes to bring at some point in time as the scriptures move on. But here it's something they lost. 
And what they do in turn then is they have to cover themselves up. Let's keep looking here. Verses 8 through 10. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they've covered themselves because they're not good with themselves. But now they used to always have these walks with God. And now because they're so aware of their frailty, their limitations, their shame, they're going, now I've got to hide out. So it used to be an open communication and relationship now has been fractured. So many things have been lost here by moving from a room to a room. So many things have been lost from getting to be vulnerable to now having to hide out. They were hiding out in plain sight with the, with the leaves they put together, and now they got to go hide and get away from the sight of God. This is getting worse and worse. And it goes on to say, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Really important to catch this. He didn't say, what did you do? And, and by the way, this isn't like God's caught off guard. This is more like if you got kids and they've done something, you walk in and you go, what'd you do? Like, I knew, I know what Charlotte did, right? Like she tore up the place, right? I know when she's got chocolate and so do you. Like if you got kids, trust me, if you're afraid of being duped by your kids, you won't be. You might be, and that'll be really sad for you, but you won't be. But like, God knows, but he still asks such a gentle and leading question. Where are you? It's inviting. And so Adam and Eve come out from where they're hiding. And then it says, he answered, I heard you in the garden, but notice this, I was afraid because I was naked. And what does the last three words say? So I hid. And now here's the story of humans ever since. No matter what we have done, we then want to hide. Again, going back to kids, when my five-year-old, about to be six, does something that she's not supposed to do, she doesn't usually run to me and say, Daddy, guess what? I just messed up. Unless she believes that's going to like cut back on the punishment. Then she's like, okay, this is like me confessing in court. I'll get less years. Let's try this out. For the most part, I have to go like stumble across it. What happened? Like she wants to hide. Like, very few of us, if you deal with any kind of addiction, and we'll just take the big ones that we, we all know and always talk about. You take the big ones like pornography, right? People don't look at that and then you to make a phone call and go, guess what I just did, you know? Like, you want to figure out how to hide with that. If it's eating, nobody, like, eats the five slices of cake at night and then makes a phone call and says, hey, guess what I just ate, like, we don't want to talk about the things. We want to hide from the things. And why is that? Like, why is it we want to keep hiding those things? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but I think one of the basic ones is, is that we're afraid of being judged. Like, we, we, don't, we don't want all of our stuff out there. Our dirty, we don't want to air our, our dirty laundry. And they realize this. They, they move from being vulnerable to having to hide. They move from getting to be good with themselves and, and every, every little corner and crevice of their body being seen to now, I'm afraid of ever being seen. And ever since, this is what's been following us as humans. You know, guilt and shame are very simple and difficult ways to talk about feelings. <laughs> and guilt, truly, though, is the simplest of all the feelings. Guilt is when you've done wrong, you simply say what? I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry I've done that. But shame, which feels like guilt, is a lot more complicated, isn't it? Because shame says not that you've done wrong, but somehow in some way you are wrong. And we tend, even after we've apologized for things, we do it in our marriages all the time, in our relationships, especially with God, that even though you apologize, you feel like you just can't get those stains out that Flannery O'Connor would talk about in her writings. Like just this stain that can't come out of my shirt. And something feels really off, and then you don't want to talk about it. You want to get away from it more and more. I mean, this is what's followed us as humans. But if you were an ancient Near Eastern Jewish person, the way you would talk about it is pretty simple. Like the way they would talk about sinning and then repentance was simple. I'll put it on the screen here. The, the word for sin in the Hebrew is hata. And it doesn't mean you horrible, wicked, vile person. It simply means to go astray. That's different when you say from how we talk about sin a lot of times or think about it. Like when I think about sin, I'm like, man, I'm going to get it today. Like that's how I approached it for so long. I go down the altar. Why else would I beat the altar the way I'd beat the steps? Because I believed I deserved something so horrible and I got to make a good showing because, you know, I messed up. But for a Jewish person in the ancient Near East, the way they talk about it is, no, you're not this horrible person. You just went astray. It's much more gentle. And then the word for repentance is a fun word. It's called teshuva. Everybody say teshuva. It's just a fun word. Teshuva. It's a fun word. It, teshuva means return to the path. So to go astray and return to the path. And here's the thing. The rhythm and liturgy of sinning and repentance, sinning and repentance, was normalized in a Jewish culture. It was expected you were going to sin a whole bunch. And it was totally okay because you can always return to the path. Like the atmosphere they had for it was quite inviting. They weren't saying like, please go mess up your life every day. No. Like, please take away from better rhythms of liturgy in your life. No, but they're saying like, hey, everybody messes up. This isn't perfection. Let's just do better. Let's try again. Return to the path. It's like if you're driving down the highway and you miss your exit, you don't start beating yourself in the head, calling yourself a stupid idiot. You go, oh, well, I'll, I mean, if you do, this sermon's for you. But like, if you drive past it, you go, oh, I just need to turn around. But you see, if you're like me, maybe you grew up in an atmosphere where those kind of things weren't invited. It wasn't invited for you to mess up. Did you know that little kids mess up all the time? Like, they're really bad at life. Like, really bad. Like, they don't have the natural skill sets in their frontal lobe to figure this stuff out yet. So they're constantly messing it up. If you provide an atmosphere where it's okay to mess up, and here's how we return to the path, those kids get to have less shame, less condemnation. Pretty simple. It's hard because then what you grew up in is challenged in those moments. See, if you grew up in an atmosphere where you were shamed every time you messed up, guess what you're going to want to pass on to your kids? More shame. This is why therapy is for you, right? If you want to be a parent. If you want to break the cycle, then you have to start addressing the ways you were shamed so that you don't pass it on to your kids. See, I just saved you a $20 investment in a book right there. That's what it looks like, though, to have to be able to parent well, but it's easier said than done. Because inside, we're so convinced we don't deserve, like, it being that easy. I messed up. I'm sorry. I want to return to the path today. And we especially don't offer those kind of almost platitudes in churches. Honestly, they're just that, platitudes. 
We tell people regularly, it's okay for you to mess up and not get it right until you show it to your accountability group, a.k.a. a shame group, and realize you didn't do as good as Tom this week. Something's off there for us. Because God immediately invites them back in after they mess up. See, the focus isn't I keep doing wrong, it's that I don't talk about the wrong and I live terminally unique in my shame. That's where we made our focus. We make the focus not that like, hey, like I messed up, let me do it differently. We make the focus that I'm so often wrong, I must be so unique and therefore this will never change. And that is a disease that starts in us. Repentance was a normal, regular rhythm. Now, why, why have we, why am I emphasizing this? This is what we make and emphasize our faith all around. Like what I'm getting right and what I'm getting wrong. And if life is simply that binary, there's much better religions or approaches to life to do than Christianity. If we take our approach of getting it right or getting it wrong, we will be buried underneath the arum and the arum that happens in Genesis 3. The shame will be too much. We've got to be willing to be an atmosphere that invites the shame cycles to be broken. A place where people get to show up and talk about where they're missing it that week. And we kind of go, you know what? I missed it there too. This is why the 12-step community is light years ahead of the church. You know when I said there are people that don't make phone calls after they mess up? Well, yeah, they do in 12-step communities. They actually encourage you to do it. They encourage you to do it right in the middle of it when you mess up so that you learn along the way that you don't have to keep doing it that same way that eventually you could even call before you do it. And then you become so self-aware that you know the kind of day it's going to be. You go ahead and make a phone call that day. They invite such an atmosphere of connecting and talking about the things we mess up on and not saying you bad, horrible person, but instead going, oh, you just person. Like, you just missed it. That's okay. I missed it too. Here's the time I missed it. We don't invite those kind of atmospheres, but listen, until we do, we won't get to see the kind of change we're looking for. And that is, you could stand up for a mirror and have that much freedom. Henry Nowen, I put it in your bulletin. Here's how he said it. So often we are inclined to keep our lives hidden. Shame and guilt prevent us from letting others know what we are living. We think if my family and friends knew the dark cravings of my heart and my strange mental wanderings, they would push me away and exclude me from their company. But the opposite is true. When we dare to lift our cup and let our friends know what is in it, they will be encouraged to lift their cups and share with us their own anxiously hidden secrets. The greatest healing often takes place when we no longer feel isolated by our shame and guilt and discover that others often feel what we feel and think what we think and have the fears, apprehensions, and preoccupations we have. I mean, and I'm okay saying this. I know for me, years ago, because I couldn't find this in the church, I had to go find this in 12-step rooms. I had to go to places where I could finally experience some grace because I couldn't find it in the church especially as a person standing up and preaching the scripture, like we set our churches and atmospheres up where the person standing in front of you has to have it all exactly right. And it was just too condemning. Listen, the people that stand up here as elders, they have so much junk. I see it all the time. I tell them about it all the time. No, like they have so much junk. So do I. And we talk about it and we give room for it. 
and then we like experience healing. Matter of fact, James chapter five says this, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. What are the things you don't want to talk about? What are the things you keep trying to shine up like a turd, sorry, and give to other people and everybody knows what's going on? What is that? I'll tell you this, you'll never heal from it until you start talking about it. And people will never be able to talk about it until we create atmospheres where they can talk about it without being excluded or judged. Two of our our core practices from the get-go say that we want to be a people who choose to be present. First and foremost, that you can show up here and talk about where you are. And the second thing is this, that you not only choose presence, but you seek health. That we are not the arbiters of each other's lives, of how it's supposed to look and work. But we do know one who has that much grace and mercy and kindness in Christ. And therefore, we want to seek the health needed to become more like Christ. And I would say to you, whatever it is you're sitting on, whatever it is you're not talking about, Lent is for you. Lent's for all of us. Where we get to talk about those things and share what's happening in our lives. This may be the season for you to finally go join that group that you need to go join here in the church or in a 12-step meeting somewhere and talk about the ways you feel plagued by just missing it and wanting to hide out. And you just want to return to the path. It may be finally taking those steps to counseling and therapy where you're afraid of being judged. Or it may simply be you sitting down with your spouse or your friends or those you're in relationship with and go, here's what you don't know about me. Can we talk about that and experience healing together? Let's pray. Lord, it's hard being human. It's hard wanting to own the ways our humanity is so, so frail. And yet, we'll never really get to have the healing until we do. So what I pray this morning is um, that as we come to your table, we would find a Christ so loving and accepting and beautiful that the question's being asked, where are you? And then we can respond by saying, here I am, and partake of the sacrifice of Christ, the love of Christ, and that whatever it is that keeps us in our shame to want to hide out, through the practice of confession and talk about our lives, Lord, during this season of Lent, would you bring healing? Healing to those places where shame's been so overwhelming. And could we even find some change happening in our lives as we are more and more willing to sit in this space together? In your name we pray, amen.